like to be fooled. Y- you know, hoodwinked, tricked, what? duped, misled, what? bamboozled, oh, conned. You like that, oh, don't God. you? Oh, God, no. Of course not. I don't think anybody does. No, I, I, agreed, agreed, right? There is almost this visceral response to being fooled, at least for myself, that feels like a violation of sorts. Oh, uh, totally. Uh, I've been there more than a few times over the years. Uh, you, you too, I'm guessing. Oh, yes. Not, not proud of it, but yes, I have. And when I think about this tip from one of our guests in this episode, I think to myself, Kurt, there's no way, no way that you would ever fall for this one. But just listen. One of my favorite examples there is products being sold in unlikely venues. Um, so if, if you are trying to, if you think you might be interested in acquiring some nice artworks like fine art for your house or your collection or whatever, um, you, you should not buy them on cruise ships or infomercials on TV, right? Right. But we do. Scams keep popping up because they work, at least to some degree. And they work because we humans have a natural tendency to believe what other people tell us. Even you, Tom. Even you. I believe what you tell me. And you should. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I'm scamming you, I don't want you to know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, in our episode today, Kurt and I got to chat with a couple of our behavioral science heroes. Daniel Simons and Christopher Shebri are the authors of Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken, and What We Can Do About It. And they are also the creators of an impressive piece of tomfoolery that's known as the monkey business illusion. And we're not going to discuss it with them today. We're not going to talk about it anymore. But if this is unfamiliar to you, check out the link in the show notes to the monkey business illusion. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, definitely. And for this episode, we spoke with them about their new book and some of the psychological gates that get open when we hear or see certain things that are appealing to us, even though they may not be true. And we talk about some of the ways to avoid being scammed. Yeah. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, it's not about being skeptical of every interaction with every single human being in every encounter. Well, not skeptical of every interaction, but maybe more no. skeptical than you were. So, like, I'm probably a little bit more skeptical about what I listened and believe that you tell me, Tim, you know, those important things, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Dan Simons is a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois, where he heads the Visual Cognition Laboratory. Because the implications of his work are so broad, he has a courtesy appointment in the Department of Advertising and the College of Business. His research explores the limits of awareness and memory, the reasons why often we are unaware of those limits, and the implications of such limits on our personal and professional lives. He is a very, very fine researcher. Yeah, and cool guy. Cool guy. They both both are cool guys. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris Shabri is a professor and co-director of the Behavioral and Decision Sciences Program at Geisinger Health System where he is also the co-director of the Geisinger Behavioral Insights team. Now, previously, Chris taught psychology at Union College and a little place up in Cambridge called Harvard University. Oh, I I think I might have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, probably. And he's been a driving force in helping us understand the limitations of our decision making. All right. So with that, Groovers, we invite you to sit back with a cool drink of skeptical reasoning and listen to our conversation with Dan and Chris. Thank you. 
Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabry. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, great to be here. We are so happy to have both of you here. This is really a treat for us. And uh, we're going to start with a speed round for both of you. Uh, let's start with Dan on this one. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Unless I'm in Britain and it's breakfast time, but oh. otherwise it's otherwise it's coffee. <laughs> Context yeah. dependent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All, all right, okay. Chris, what, where, where are you on coffee or tea? Uh, entirely on the coffee side, but I'm trying to cut back a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Whereas I am not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, you and me together here. I used to be uh, there and I'm just like, I've no, I needed it. I had to go get an extra cup before this here. Um, all right. Again, to both of you, we'll start this time um, with you, Chris. Dinner with your favorite actor or musician? You mean I have to pick actor or musician or I have to give an actual name? <laughs> well, let's start no, with the just category. actor or musician. We don't, uh, we'll, we'll let you flub <laughs> on the name at this point. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, wow, that's a tough one. I guess I'd have to go with, I, I guess, I, hmm, boy, that's a tough one. I guess I'll go with musician just to keep things rolling. Okay. Well, I hope this is the hardest question that we have today. <laughs> the, 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 you know, there you go. All right. Um, Dan? You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm stumped. Uh, I, I'd say actor. Actor? Yeah. Okay. okay. But I have no idea which actor. Okay. So we won't, we won't dig <laughs> yeah. into who on either of these, yeah. but we got, <laughs> we got there. All right. Okay. All righty. So uh, I'm going to direct this one towards Dan. Um, in Brave New World... Aldous Huxley famously claimed that 62,400 repetitions make one truth. Was he pretty close to being correct in that calculation? Well, I mean, it, it probably would make a truth, but I, I don't think you need that many. Yeah, <laughs> He doesn't so, need that many, yeah. No, I mean, there's a, a phenomenon that we talk about in the book called the illusory truth effect. Yes. Where really just one repetition sometimes can change how much people believe something. Whether it makes it a truth or just shifts people's belief a little bit is a, is a difference. But yeah, repetition works. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I found that, that that part was surprising to me. I knew that repetition, obviously, that that is a piece of, of kind of people believing things. But one, that was, anyway, we can talk about that later. This is yeah. a speed round. We got to get there. All right. All right. We're, we're going to go with Chris now here. True or false, once a result is accepted into a peer-reviewed literature, 10 times as much evidence or more can be required to get a contrary finding published. I would say absolutely true. Um, <laughs> although, of course, it really depends on you know exactly what finding and what the evidence is and so on. But yes, generally, it takes a lot more counter evidence to rebut something than it does to get it established in the first place. Yeah, which is really an interesting facet that you guys bring up in the book. And, and we are talking with Dan and Chris today about their new book called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken and What We Can Do About It. And so with that, I just want to start with actually, let's let's go, Chris, back to you again. What was the what were you hoping for readers to get out of this book? Obviously, uh, you guys have written books together before, but what was the impetus for this book and what were you hoping readers to get? Well, I'd say the impetus for this book was we wanted to write another book because the first one we liked quite a bit. And I think we liked the process of writing it. I certainly enjoyed writing it as compared to working on, you know, all the other things that academics do and so on. It was much different. And I've always liked trying to explain what we know and what we don't know, for that matter, to uh, a broader audience than just our colleagues. And I think we'd been thinking about doing it again because the first one did pretty well, um, thinking about doing it again. and. It was only really late in the process, which has been 13 years 
<laughs> long since wow. the previous book came out. Wow. So, so just a short the, little bit yeah, of yeah. Uh, time between those. Okay. L- late in the process, like three years ago, um, or two and a half years ago, when uh, Dan actually suggested that the focusing on deception and fraud and scams would really unify the ideas we'd been working with much better than they had been unified before. We had previous working titles, previous outlines, and so on, mm. but centering it on scams, misinformation, cheating, deception, and so on really, I think, brought it together and also was especially timely for, you know, reasons that might be obvious um, these days, or we can discuss, you know, in more in more detail later. As for what we want people to get out of it, I would really like people to understand the nature of deception and cheating and cons, which is something that we talk about so much. And there's so much literature and movies and shows and podcasts devoted to these stories, understand the nature of it more deeply from the point of view of the people who are the victims. Because mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff that, that we see focuses a lot on the dashing con artists, they must be geniuses, are they psychopaths, the poor victims, they lost everything, they're suffering, but not so much on why they got conned in the first place. And it's 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 not, you know, it's not like every con is unique. There are recurring patterns and and you know ideas and, and habits and we could talk about all that. But really we wanted to to give that idea that there's like a cognitive psychology of this thing and you can understand it and it might help you. Dan, was there a specific item? Was there was there a specific event or something that you noticed that was like, wait a minute, that's this is what we have to talk about. This is what we should we should go after. Not really. I mean, we we've been compiling themes, and many of the themes that we've been compiling over the last you know, thirteen years ended up in the book in some form, and maybe another equivalent amount didn't. But a lot of those sorts of themes, you know, we had other organizations and other structures for them that kind of worked and kind of didn't, and you know, we could get some of the things that we wanted in, and it just did, the framing just didn't quite work. So. Really, the, the theme of deception, it worked because it brought together the two different elements of the book that we were trying to get in. One, one was these sort of tendencies, thought processes, what we call habits, that are really effective and efficient most of the time. And that's really a kind of a central point is that these are all things that are most, for the most part, really good, mm. right? We, we want to be able to do these things. And we, we are. We're able to most of the time. So it was able to bring together those habits and then also the kinds of information um, that we find really appealing and why, right? The what we call hooks. And by bringing those two things together, both of those are, the, the organization for us was, both of those can be hijacked. Mm. Right? Both of those can be used by people who are trying to fool us. And we kind of realized that it all came together that way, that if you look at all these scams and cons that we've been accumu- accumulating over the years as good examples of of you know, how cognition is working, they all kind of had that element to them. They all relied on the same sorts of principles and the same sorts of ways with new variants all the time. Yeah. Chris, you mentioned that the the book's release and the timing kind of are, are pretty relevant given some of the things going on. You said maybe we can get into that. Let's get into that. So what, <laughs> what are some of those pieces that, I mean, as we think about the the topic that you guys are talking about, this idea of deception, fraud, various different pieces. And and I know there's some particularly in the science world that, you know, that we work in the research world. But I think even in general, there's probably some other aspects uh, that come into play. So uh, help us you know expand upon that. I would say there's a number of threads that sort of lead me to think that this is an especially timely topic. One, as you mentioned, science fraud and generally bad research practices in science. I would say 20 years ago, I was not very much 
aware of them. Mm. I knew about some things, but when you would read about a story, like, for example, Jan Hendrik Schoen, who's someone we talk about in the book, who basically published many fraudulent papers in Science and Nature, the sort of two top journals we have in all of science, those seem like the dramatic exceptions to the rule. Like, this must, this is the craziest thing ever. Like, you know, nobody else is doing that. But as time went on, you know, more scientific fraud has been revealed and the scale of it has been revealed to be larger than many people thought. I don't think it means you shouldn't trust science or anything like that, but just we need to be aware of, of the fact that in science there is there is fraud, just like there is in pretty much every other domain of life. So that became more apparent. I think also uh, there's been a sense that even in uh, in business, for example, that you know practices that formerly might have been considered deceptive or over the edge or whatever have become sort of part of routine business. There have been books about, uh, you know, hedge funds that sort of try to establish clever systems for garnering and disseminating and using insider information while basically shielding everybody from legal liability somehow. And, you know, that didn't used to be sort of the standard MO that was considered a big exception. And there's even the growth of businesses whose sort of business model is providing tools for cheating. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, new AI technologies like large language models and, and really good chatbots have tremendous potential there, which is, which is obvious. I'm not saying those were created for that purpose, but they certainly make it easier. So technology making cheating easier, noticing that it's happening more, it may be becoming more accepted in certain domains. And, and of course, the spread of, of course, I would say the rise of misinformation and disinformation also enabled by technology like the internet. And there, and there are many more probably that I'm, I'm not thinking of, but these are some of the things that I think are all you know, sort of coming together now and make it more important that we be aware of how this works and how we're vulnerable to it. Just to amplify that over the last few years, of course, we've been dealing with a lot of virtual interaction, mm -hmm. right? And that's led to a lot more online presence and identity theft and things like that are increasing a lot because we're, we're constantly online. The AI thing is going to be, you know, I mean, it, all of these are going to be capitalizing on the same sorts of principles, just in new ways. Right? So there's a there's a terrible scam going around right now. Um, and it's not not new, but it's it's more kind of evil in some ways than a lot of the other sort of just make money scams, which is that um, people target a grandparent or a parent and pretend to be calling on behalf of their kid who's been in an accident or is in some sort of a crisis and needs money urgently. And it preys on fears. It preys on that sort of immediacy. And they do enough digging to find out about the person, mm. right? So that they, they can kind of sound like they know. Uh, this is the standard tactic for a lot of sort of call center scams. They learn enough about you from your online presence that they can target you. But think about what AI is going to do to that. We're not that far off to, from having pretty good voice synthesis if you've got recordings mm. of yourself online. And if you've got good voice synthesis, Imagine how much more effective it is if the person, if the grandparent getting this call, if the if the caller has the grandchild's voice, right? It's that much worse. So you have to kind of think about ways of, you know, short circuiting those sorts of scams yeah. and thinking about how they're going to capitalize on your immediacy of fear and or or desires. Right? A lot of scams capitalize on your desires. These are capitalizing on your fears. Got to admit uh, that the book, uh, there's a lot of evidence in the book to to make us want to be makes me want to be more skeptical, uh, you know, to be to be more careful. Right. I, which is uh, hopefully one of the reasons why you're writing it is to right put the warning out there. But on kind of on a highest level, who can we trust? 
<laughs> you can trust us. <laughs> trust me. Thank trust you, Mr. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. <laughs> Anybody exactly. that says trust me, that's what people yeah. that you can trust, right? We're starting a very long con right now with this podcast. So, uh, uh, it's not sure what, not clear where it's going yeah. or where we get up. Yeah, we don't know where it's going, but we know it started. Yeah, We're so. playing right yeah. into your evil scheme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but Chris, uh, uh, how how do we how do we parse that out? You know, how do we how do we sort of say, I mean, is there any source that we're just going to say it's likely to be reliable? We're it's it's sort of OK to just drop our concerns about this particular source, this particular this particular messenger, for instance. Well, I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think, you know, for, for any kind of relationship where you, you you think really one ought to be able to trust that person, you can find examples where such people were, you know, scamming and cheating and conning and so on, right? Even in the closest relationships we have, spouses, children, grandparents, and so on, you're going to find examples where that was basically hijacked, you know, and became a vector of, of, of fraud and, you know, and, and, and cheating and, and so on. On the other hand, we can't go through life being, you know, hyper skeptics, you know, who never form any relationships with anyone, never believe anything we read, you know, never make any investments, never, you know, whatever. There, right. There needs to be some kind of balance. So I'm not it, sure it, if it, it goes, like goes it, Yeah, it goes yeah. against our DNA. I mean, that would be really hard to do. Yes. And I'm not sure there's any category of people that you should always trust. Like one might think, you know, religious leaders, but of course there have been some of those who have been completely untrustworthy. One might, you know, so it doesn't go category by category, right? I think part of our message of our book is that, you know, all of us are vulnerable somehow. There's always situations that, you know, where we might be, uh, you know, exploitable, even within our own fields of expertise, right? Someone clever yeah. can come along and craft a con like scientific fraud, scientific fraud cons people who are experts in the science. Um, so, uh, it, it really is about not so much thinking like, when are we safe, but how do we manage our skepticism so that we apply it, you know, when the stakes are the highest. I'll just amplify that, that, you know, the vast majority of the time we can trust people, right? The, these scams wouldn't work if we were always skeptical of everybody all the time. And we couldn't function if we were always skeptical of everybody all the time. So they only work because, of course, most of the time people are honest. Most of the time people are not trying to fool us or steal from us. You know, it, it's most people are good. So, you know, if you if you kind of take the message that you should always be skeptical, that's absolutely the wrong message. Right? That the vast majority of the time, it just doesn't matter that much. Right. And it's really being aware of those times when it does matter, when there, when the consequences are big that we need to be more, maybe a little bit more skeptical. I, I thought you, for sure you guys were going to say politicians. We could trust them pretty much every single time. <laughs> Don't worry about them. Other people, maybe not so much. But, uh, you know, but, all right, I guess that's not the case. Um, So I, I do want to get into some of the, as you guys mentioned before we got on air, you said lots of people were asking about the last couple chapters. And again, a lot of that is around the scientific community and and some of the pieces that were coming up there. So as we think about the replication crisis and, you know, you can call it crisis or just the, you know, what's going on within science overall. You write about like how, how this is going on, but is there anything that we can do 
you know, to kind of look at it first. Can you describe how you guys think about this? Um, Cause it's slightly different than I think, you know, lots of people that are out there that are talking about the, the replication crisis as we go. And then talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you bring up in the book and how we can remedy this or ways that we can be thinking about this, at least in a different manner. Um, and Dan, why don't you start with that? Yeah. So, you know, this is something I've been thinking about and, and working on for, for many years, right? So I, I actually edited one of the psychology journals, um, that was recently founded that focuses on things like reproducibility and methods. And I think a lot of people view this not so much as a crisis as an opportunity, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I, I view it as the credibility revolution, yeah. right? That these problems have been around, right? It's not like they've suddenly emerged, right? These are problems that we've had in the, in the literature, not just in psychology, but in pretty much all of the sciences. It's, uh, psychology is among the first to kind of introspect and realize that there was a problem. But this is true in every field that anybody's looked at, that there are problems with credibility due to you know, questionable methods and reporting and analysis practices. But I'm actually really optimistic for the first time about this. I, I've known about these problems for going on 30 years. Mm. If you look back in the history of statistics and methodology, which is, you know, very exciting literature. Um, <laughs> but if, if, you, wow. if you look back into it, every 20 years or so, people raise the same concerns. Wow. Right? This is not a new phenomenon, but they never caught on. And this is one of those times where the mass communication, the internet, uh, the ability to communicate and identify criticisms publicly and quickly has radically changed how the field is viewing this. So, this time it caught on. Yeah. Right? People realized, okay, there there actually are some big problems. There was a confluence of a whole bunch of events at once that kind of triggered this sort of reflection. And I think there are solutions, which is the great part. Right? There are some great tools now for making science more credible. So talk a little bit about some of those tools. And, and uh, you know, sure. uh, yeah. I'll let you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot. All, any tool has flaws. Any tool can be gamed, right? Any criterion can be played. Um, but, you know, there there's some techniques that kind of work the way we think science works and the way that most people in the public think science works. Um, so most people think of science as, hey, you have this idea, you have this hypothesis or theory that you want to test. Right? You set up an experiment and you lay out, hey, if it comes out this way, that's going to mean this. If it comes out this way, it's going to mean this other thing. Let's see where the, the evidence takes us. And that's not how science has worked most of the time. Most of the time, people kind of have a rough idea. They collect some data. They think about a story they can tell with the data, and then they tell their story and kind of link it all back together after the fact, which we now know is really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a new model of publishing that's emerging called registered reports. And the whole idea is you write out the introduction for your paper, motivate what you're going to do for your study. You write out the methods and say, here's what we're going to do. And then you write out how you're going to analyze the data and what different patterns of results would tell you. And that's what gets reviewed. That's what get peer, gets peer reviewed because then you're evaluating, is this a study that's going to provide compelling evidence one way or the other, right? So that's the stage of primary review. And for anybody who's done kind of a master's thesis or, or a, a PhD thesis, that's what happens there, right? You propose what you're going to do. Your committee says, nah, that's a dumb idea. Let's fix it and do it this way. And then you do it and you get your end result, right? And that kind of ends up being the thesis regardless of how it came out. Well, this move to change how publishing works is, is taking off. Um, it's this sort of model first started around 2013 yeah. or so. And now there are, you know, more than a hundred journals that accept this sort of 
research format. Some of the major journals are starting to. That eliminates so many of the problems because it's no longer an evaluation based on how well it fits what you want to have happen. It's an evaluation based on whether it's a good study. Well, and, and it's for, for the researchers, it's no longer, I have to tell a good story to get published, right? It's the, exactly. that, that is the piece again, where there was that publication bias on, Hey, it's novel. Yeah. It's unique. It's different. And, and it's, you know, it's going to be something that gets talked about. And this, that, that takes that away. And, and you're going to probably, I'm assuming, and you might have seen this, but, you know, a lot more. Oh, yeah. This hypothesis didn't turn out like we thought we we're going to get a lot more of the negative, uh, you know, re results published. One, one of the things you said in your book, and I want to, and I think this is looking backwards, maybe not so much looking forward, but, um, and I love this quote just because, and I don't know which of you wrote it or if you even remember, but, um, you state, uh, this in psychology and other social sciences, many studies lack a suitable, powerful telescope to provide reliable answers to their empirical questions. And, and in looking back, I mean, do you feel like many of these issues that are, that kind of come up are because, uh, sample size and just the power of these studies is just too small. And, uh, you know, you look back at studies from the eighties and you're going, they did this with 18 people, you know, it's, it's like one class of, and they're all college age students and all of those pieces is, I don't know. And maybe it was just me, but I really love that, that sentence and just wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Yeah. I was just say it, it depends on the kind of claim, yeah. right? So, you know, I think we should be really wary of claims that are likely to vary across people and across contexts if you have a tiny little num sample of people from one really restricted group. I mean, that, that's, that's not going to lead to a general conclusion that's robust and that's meaningful. There are disciplines where a small number of participants is just fine. So if you're studying visual perception and you're interested in how our perceptibility of an object changes as you increase its contrast to the background and you systematically vary the contrast to the background and you have each person do tens of thousands of trials of this, right? Those results are going to be robust with two or three people, right? Because most people have the same kind of contrast mechanisms in their vis early visual processing, right? It's not, not varying hugely across context of people. Um, you can measure it really systematically to the point that the error bars are smaller than the dots plotting the average <laughs> value. I, I've literally seen that at a conference presentation. The error bars were smaller than the dots um, because there's there's just so much data. Um, but it's a different kind of yeah. question, okay. right? If you're interested in individual differences or group differences, yeah, you need big samples, right? If you're interested in the function for an individual person and showing that, hey, that everybody has pretty much the same function, whether or not it shifts up and down, then no, you probably don't. But those are those are very limited fields, right? I'm curious, uh, and Chris, I want to uh, put this over uh, in in your neck of the woods here. We talked to uh, many behavioral scientists on this on this podcast. Uh, we've 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 had guests who have had um, papers uh, retracted, uh, as a matter of fact, and. Um, and so this, forgive me if this sounds a little bit self-serving, but there's a part, there's a part of me sort of wondering, like, are there questions that we could ask up front or is there a way that we approach those kinds of discussions that might, um, that's, I guess that's better for the listeners in 170 countries? Um, no, I'm really curious about to go back and listen to those interviews <laughs> <laughs> uh, and figure out who those folks were. That's a really good question. I, I think, uh, 
it's not always obvious when, you know, some kind of data fraud or image manipulation or whatever has happened. But uh, there are, you know, some signs that you can look at in the papers to sort of detect certain kinds of fraud. Now, whether you then want to begin your interview by throwing that back at the guest and saying, (laughs) you know, I noticed in table two of your recent paper, you know, that there's p-values are all suspiciously close to 0.05, you know, and they're never like 0.01 or, you know, I mean, I don't really know how you want to approach that with with the guests, but um, certainly uh, there are some, you know, some signs that, you know, that fraud may have occurred, but they're not necessarily easy to find. Like, for example, going back to image manipulation, right? Often image manipulations that are done, an image manipulation happens when a figure is published in a paper that doesn't represent the true results of the experiment that it's, it's purported to represent, but it's some kind of modified image from a different paper or a different experiment or something that is, that is made to look like it would have looked like if those results had come out that way. Those can take real experts to tell, uh, you know, uh, how they're similar to others, how they were changed, and so on. That that's not necessarily that's not necessarily easy. And, and some of the scientific fraudsters who had the greatest number of papers retracted were, were sort of, you know, detected by looking at fairly um, subtle characteristics of data, like correlations among, you know, variables that weren't even necessarily published in the main, you know, part part of the um, part of the article. Um, I would, I would love to hear, I, I would love to hear, you know, what Dan's tips are for sort of just detecting, you know, fraud in, in papers or in interviews <laughs> for that matter. But the one thing I, the, the one thing I would say is, is right. When, when people, you know, before, before hearing what Dan says, when people have too good a story and everything they tell you like worked out exactly right. And, you know, all their, all their results are significant and none of them fail and so on. Like that should be a sign that something weird is going on because in in the human sciences, like, you know, things don't usually work that way. Uh, There's too much variability, especially with small sample sizes to get such consistency, right? At that level of consistency should really start to open your mind to the possibility that something else is going on here besides what the story is that we're being told. Dan, before you answer, I just want to expand that just beyond fraud, even it it just is in some of these cases, I don't think I'm pretty confident that it's not fraud. It just is they have they've papers that didn't replicate in various different pieces. And I think we're much more likely to probably interview those people, hopefully, as opposed to fraudsters. But <laughs> well, when you, you, when you said retracted, I sort of immediately <laughs> well, assumed that fraud was involved because that's, that's, usually, that's yeah, usually you don't retract a paper merely because someone else couldn't replicate it. I mean, maybe yeah. because you couldn't replicate it, you might retract it. But then usually even then there's a suspicion that something went wrong, yeah. you know, in the initial process, not that it was just like an accidental, you know, false positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's very dangerous to associate fraud with false results, yeah. right? Results that just don't hold up. And because fraud, fraud implies intent, yeah. right? Yeah. But, and it, especially earlier, I mean, now, now there's a gray area, right? Now we know what practices are questionable. Um, but if you go back before, say, you know, 2010, right? A lot of people were trained to use practices that we now know are yeah. bad. Right, that we now know are much more likely to generate false results. Um, they're just not going to be true. And just because you found a P less than yeah. 0.05 doesn't mean it's true. And people didn't understand that. People took P less than 0.05 as truth, even if they fudged things around a lot to get a lot to that of P point hacking going on data. that wasn't necessarily, totally. you know, they, just and, as you said, they were taught that. And way, even right? and even unintentional yeah. P hacking, right? P, even P hacking also implies intent. No, yeah, that's right? true. You're, yeah. you're deliberately trying to. I think a lot of people just didn't realize how. Oh well, you know, we threw out outliers that were 
way far out, but that didn't get the result we want. So let's throw them out when they're a little closer, right? And forget that you've changed and looked at it multiple ways. That alone can increase your false positive rate. But people had no idea that all of these sorts of practices, and I think a lot of people, you could say, they just didn't know, yeah. right? They weren't trained in modern methods and statistics. They, they just didn't know. They, tra they were trained by their advisors who did the same thing, right? So I think that's the, the danger is, you know, assuming that there was bad intent. I don't think there necessarily is. It's often just people don't remember what it was that they did exactly, report it the way that they, you know, the story that worked nicely two years later, right? The other, the other thing that has changed a little bit, though, is now that people are aware of these practices, if they continue to do those things, then we're into a gray area where there's some intent. And, you know, you never know whether they're just still oblivious or whether it's willful blindness or whether it's, you know, intent. But, you know, so I, I tend to prefer staying away from accusing of, of fraud or misconduct instead, say, using questionable practices, yeah. right? Because those questionable practices might, if there is intent behind them, become fraud, or they might just be bad research practices, or they might just, you know, and occasionally you just get a result that's wrong, which should happen some of the time, right? Even if the research is perfectly yeah. done. If you do the same study a whole bunch of times, unless it's an absolutely massive study, if you do it over and over again, some of the times it's just not going to work by the definition of working. You bring up this idea of uh, how they were trained, how the researchers were trained, what and, and their colleagues. There's there's sort of a question of I don't want to I don't want to make this sound too harsh, but a sort of accountability. Like at what point do the the PhD advisors play a role in in making sure that the PhD students are 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 just being more careful and being more thoughtful and and sort of the, the committee is saying well wait a minute why just because we've got a, a you know a p less than you know uh, 5.05 why is that okay what does you know uh, is is there a sort of enough pushback early on to to sort of breed a uh, an environment of you know we're going to be more rigorous about this I think these days the problem goes in the other direction. Oh. It's normally the advisors who are the problem <laughs> and the the younger researchers the earlier career researchers who get yeah. it. Right. So, you know, imagine you're in a lab that has, you know, eight grad students and a couple of postdocs. And uh, the only time you ever get sort of positive feedback from your advisor is when you bring in a result that's perfectly what they want for their theory. Right. What's the incentive structure there? Right. That's that's a really hard problem. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the field's changing in that way. But I, I think that was probably the source of a lot of the questionable results in the literature that people are setting up an incentive structure where you have to bring in the next big flashy thing and that's what generates excitement and if you don't get that then you didn't have flair and you weren't able to you know do good work yeah, yeah i think um it, there's uh, I'll, I'll make two points one is there's always the tension between individual choice and the so-called incentives mm -hmm. right and you know it's kind of incentives all the way down right because if if your salary is based on your ability to get grants your ability to get grants is based on your ability to generate positive results, your ability to generate positive results is based on your ability to have grad students who bring you, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. uh, there, there's incentives all the way down, but that, but, but that's to me, like not an ultimate excuse, um, because you could justify almost any, you know, al almost any behavior by saying there were, there were incentives. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a grand society level solution to yeah. this problem, uh, except maybe to, you know, somehow do something to divorce researchers and scientists job security from their ability to get 
you know, publications in in nature and science and and million dollar grants. Yeah. There are some, you know, and, and if you, you know, I think we don't want to leave anyone with the impression that, you know, psychological science or psychological science in the U.S. is the locus of this problem. It's actually, as Dan said, the bright spot. You yeah. know, if you compare, sad to say, you know, medical research or, you know, scientific research in certain other countries where researchers are literally paid per paper they get into certain top journals based on the impact factor, which is a much more attenuated relationship here in, in the U.S. Than it, than it is there. You see the problem magnify. And, and also the training is worse, I would say, you know, in, in many of these other fields, right? So like, yeah. you know, there are papers showing how in neuroscience, elementary statistical errors have been made for, for decades that... <laughs> At least psychology researchers are taught not to do in like the first month of their stats course, right? You know, so um, I, I'm referring to like not testing for an interaction, but claiming that you know that the presence of one effect and the absence of another, you know, at at the statistical threshold, sort of shows you an interaction. But there's many examples like that that you, if you look at the yeah. exciting literature on statistics and you know and so on that Dan pointed out, you can find there are a lot of interesting papers that which are interesting because they point out how many times. In respectable publications, these these standards are violated, but it's worse outside of psychological. It's worse outside of psychological science, really, than yeah. um, than, than than within. So, in in part of my other work, um, my day job doing actual scientific research instead of writing about it, um, I, I have been making sort of the conscious attempt to commend people on on our teams for doing a great analysis, you know, executing a great study, like doing everything perfectly so that we have confidence in the result, whatever it is, right? That's yeah. really what we should be, you know, emphasizing is like, let's make sure that the experiment answers the question, or at least gives us data that, you know, we can interpret clearly, you know, as opposed to giving, quote, the right result. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Another thing related to this is normalizing that it's okay when things yeah. fail, and it's okay to be yeah. wrong. Right. And this is actually something that Chris has done a lot on with the, uh, a paper about this. It, you should talk about that, Chris, because it's your paper. Um, <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'll, very briefly, um, there's a, a paper that I was um, sort of involved in conceptualizing and, and contributing to um, that described something called the loss of confidence project. So um, we, we, we noticed that, um, you know, there's a famous um, there's a there's a famous study that got a lot of publicity um, uh, about something called power posing, which which you and our readers may have heard of. And. Uh, after that study became controversial, one of the authors of it published a statement, basically not retracting the paper, but basically stating that she didn't believe the results anymore and, and essentially had lost confidence in these findings, which appeared under her own name. And we thought maybe there are more researchers who, you know, have publications on their, you know, on their CV and, and out there in the world, but that they have sort of just discovered over time or were not done correctly or should not be believed anymore. So we, we got about 13 other researchers to ultimately contribute their own sort of loss of confidence statements. And we did a survey um, showing that this is relatively common, actually. Um, so yeah. just as sort of questionable research practices are more common than people thought, I think researchers no longer having confidence in their own in their own studies is, is somewhat common. And as Dan says, we, we should, you know, we should try to normalize it and make it acceptable to to, to admit that rather than having to sort of project this unreasonable confidence that everything you've ever published must still be correct. Does it come down into self-identity too for some of that though? I mean, people put a lot of time, energy, their reputation, it kind of, this is, I am this person, right? Um, along that line, how much does that play into what, you know, that, that 
kind of uh, hesitancy to kind of go, yeah, I, I was, I, I don't believe this anymore and I believe something else. It's hard. I mean, saying that you're wrong yeah. is hard, right? <laughs> and acknowledging that you're wrong is hard. I mean, it, it's what we're supposed to be trained to do as scientists, yes. but we're also people, yeah. right? That, you know, if you've spent the last 15 years of your career promoting an idea and the evidence starts undermining it, it's really hard to say, nope, I was wrong for those 15 years. Yeah. Right. All of that work that I did wasn't yeah. right. Um, that's, you know, that's a non-trivial thing yeah. to do. And if you want to sign for like who you should trust, going back to an earlier question, maybe people who routinely admit when they're wrong might be, you know, uh, a positive signal. It, it's true that some, you know, some cheaters are clever. Like some of them will do things like, you know, deliberately like, you know, create a situation to show that they made a mistake or something like that, you know, in order to sort of gain your confidence, gain your trust. Um, but if someone routinely does it in contexts where it doesn't seem like they're running a con or they're not trying to sell you something, they're not trying to persuade <laughs> you of something, but they're just that kind of person over long enough interactions, I would say you might be able to trust them more often. Their, their, their statements probably are better calibrated to reality if they're, if they're willing to admit they might be wrong. Here's another sign, right, along the same lines. Uh, do people constrain their claims? Oh. So in psychology, we often do studies on a bunch of undergrads. Uh, but even then, even when we broaden it beyond that, if you look at the titles of papers and the abstracts of papers, you would think that these tiny little effects apply to the universe at large in all contexts, in all situations, and they're, they're totally unconstrained. Um, and looking for the willingness to constrain your claims, say, okay, we know that this applies for this population under these conditions. We think it might for these other ones, but we don't know. Um, that should give you more cre uh, credibility, right? Because you're, you're basically saying we don't know. When instead of trying to oversell it, when something gets hyped right, in the media, and, and we see this all the time in psychology, you end up seeing a press release that makes these amazingly grandiose claims. This is the first paper to ever do this. And look how important this is. And more often than not, it's nonsense, yeah. right? It's, it's <laughs> a tiny little twist on something that was fairly well established. And even then, it's like, okay, you know, yeah, it's a contribution. Make it just a contribution. Don't make it the end of, you know, the, the greatest discovery you know, in the world. Yeah. Uh, God, thank, thank you for, for sharing that. That's, a, that's a, actually, that's a great little epistle uh, to, to, as a soundbite, just to kind of keep, keep in my, in my mind, Chris, I, I want to ask you uh, about our, the bullshit, the bullshit receptivity uh, that, that you guys talk about, because first of all, it's a great title. I mean, it's good. It's always good to use catchy names and bullshit receptivity is a, is a pretty catchy idea, but, uh, but it's an important one. And so could you tee it up for us? Tell us a little bit about it. And, and Dan, you might have some thoughts about why it's so important as well. Yeah. I want to start by saying that we did not invent that phrase. Um, that comes <laughs> from a paper by, um, Gordon Pennycook and, um, David Rand and maybe other co-authors, I, I forget. Um, and you should definitely have, you know, you should definitely have them on if you uh, yeah. if you haven't ever before to talk about this. But um, so, it, it, but in a nutshell, I think it's it's an important it's an important concept when it comes to being cheated and scammed, um, because one of the you know one of the ways people can um, can convince us of things that aren't true is by feeding us bullshit as opposed to actual useful information. So, you know, bullshit is sort of information which is you know, doesn't really have a discernible truth value or, or, or falsity value, but it seems like it could be useful information. It seems like it might mean something. So in the bullshit receptivity scale research, um, they used statements by, I believe, Deepak Chopra, yeah. um, who is is prone to making 
statements that sort of sound weighty and important, but upon closer examination, don't appear to actually mean anything. Um, <laughs> anything. And uh, it, they're almost, um, they're in a, in a way sort of like a forerunner of stuff that a uh, language model could have created maybe, yep, you know, yep. on, a, on a bad day. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, what, what the research found was that uh, if you give people a bunch of these statements and, and, and ask them to evaluate them, some people, you know, are, are sort of find more meaning in them and, than, than others do. Uh, and those people also have some other characteristics. I think plausibly they might be more likely to be influenced by certain kinds of you know, uh, marketing and other appeals and, and, and cons and so on than people who, uh, people who don't, you know, who don't appreciate that kind of language, um, yeah. uh, that kind of language as much. Yeah, I was going to say, one, yeah, one of the, one of the real challenges, one of the things we emphasize a bit in the book is the need to sort of ask one more question at times. So before forwarding that, that meme or that, uh, that story that sounds exactly like what you want to believe, you know, just pausing for a second, say, is that really true? Yeah. Right. And just like, what, what evidence would I need to know if that were true can work in a lot of times to just slow you up just enough that you stay uncertain. But the problem with bullshit is you can't ask that question. Right? <laughs> is that really true? Doesn't really have a yes, no answer. Yeah. Right. Um, so you end up not being able to, you know, dismiss yeah. it as easily. So it, it is a sign. You can tell that something is bullshit if you couldn't answer. Is that true? <laughs> and you can't say yes or no. Yeah, yeah. Might not be. If you say, could that even be false? And the answer is, huh? I don't know. Like, if there's no possible truth value, true or false, right, yeah. then maybe it's bullshit. Right? Yeah. That's the, yeah. that's well, the, you that's also talk about this uh, tips on evading selection, kind of this piece. And I, I it, when I read this, I'm like, going, oh, this sounds like a talking head song lyric, right? You, you talk about. <laughs> you might ask yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what am I doing? How did yes. I get here? Right. Those yeah. are like, so uh, help our, our listeners understand some of the tips that they can be thinking about and, and what you can bring up from that, that perspective. One of my favorite examples there is products being sold in unlikely venues. Um, <laughs> so if, if you are trying to, if you think you might be interested in acquiring some nice artworks like fine art for your house or your collection or whatever, you should not buy them on cruise ships or infomercials on TV, right? So, um, and those are two very specific tips, you know, that you can take from this book. And if if nothing else, maybe those will save, you know, those will save you uh, a lot of money because it turns out that there were, you know, businesses selling um, these supposed jacle works, which are sort of machine printed reproductions of works, but maybe slightly embellished by the artist or signed by the artist you know, to indicate that it's a signed limited edition. And it turns out in some cases there's true fraud where the artist's signature is being applied by an, an automatic pen and they don't even know what's going on. Or the artist's signature was applied to the paper maybe years before the work was printed onto it and so on. So in, in no sense are they really associated <laughs> with the artist in the, in the sense in which you might, you know, derive, you know, some kind of um, value from, from it. Um, and those are often sold in these like these, these sort of a little bit dodgy venues. Right. So, you know, what am I doing here? You know, it can be a question that tells you, like, why am I buying art on a cruise ship? I should be buying <laughs> art in an art gallery or maybe in an auction or maybe from a reputable seller online even or something like that, where there are, you know, ways that you can try to verify the authenticity. Of course, fraud can happen in any kind of art venue. And in fact, the art world is sort of especially prone to fraud because art is a good way of, of laundering money and hiding assets and, you know, and so on. But it's also a, a good venue because a lot of the cognitive issues we identify in the book, you know, can apply to 
our being uh, taken in, you know, by, by, by deception and in art. But what am I doing here is sort of, you know, and also why me, right? Yeah. So when you get one of these crazy emails that has typos and grammatical errors and so on, and you think this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, well, you're just discovering that the scam is not targeted at you. Like you are not one of the people who they, in fact, they don't want to engage you. They want you to throw it away because if you bother to engage with them, you're only going to waste their time, right? <laughs> that they could be productively scamming someone, you know, more, more vulnerable, Whereas you're talking to them, you're never going to send them money because you can tell this is a scam. If you engage, you're just wasting their time. And that's, in fact, a way to try to, you know, fight back against these folks is to waste their time, you know, by by uh, interacting with them, but then never, you know, never following through. Yeah. I mean, phishing emails are basically a more mundane version of the, you know, buy art on a cruise ship <laughs> model, right? That they purport to be legitimate. Right. And if you're not pausing and saying, wait, why would I get an email from my department head asking me to buy gift cards? Right. Um, you, you wouldn't. But if you don't stop to think about it and you trust that person and they give you some information that sounds right, because, of course, they find information about you before targeting, then that's going to be very effective. Right. But these selection mechanisms, the scammers get better at this. Right. So in, in the call center scams where people would get call up and, and, uh, threaten people to be deported or say they owe back taxes and tell them to go buy gift cards and tell them the code numbers. If anybody ever asks you to buy a gift card at a Walgreens or something and read off a card number, it is a scam, right? That, that's, that's never <laughs> going to be a legitimate way of conveying money. But people are afraid and they catch people who are not aware of the sorts of risks. And there, there are lots of variants of these, but they've gotten better and better. So now what they do is they use robocalls. So rather than sending an email with a whole bunch of you know gibberish in it to try and filter, they use robocalls and give a callback number. Anybody who calls back has self-selected into the scam, right? They you you automatically I mean, if you get a call for you know extending your warranty on your car, you hang up, right? But anybody who calls back that number, they're a target. Wow. I, I, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, everyone remember that no U.S. governmental agency collects money by prepaid gift cards that you read the numbers <laughs> off yep. on a phone call. That is not a thing. So there's another, another on, easy I, way I, to save your money. I, I, I need to, <laughs> yep. I need to go uh, check something really quick while you guys, I, I need to get that gift card back. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too late. Damn it. Too late. They, they moved the money. Yeah. yeah. Gone. You got like 15 minutes once <laughs> they, you read they, that card. They move the off. money around really fast in those scams, right? Because yeah. they know that like it could be taken back. So they do a lot of money laundering steps to get that money out of there as fast as they can. It's a lot of work. It just feels like a, it's it's a lot of work to be a scammer. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But in a lot of these call center ones, they, they've got these are large organizations like these yeah. are not a couple of random guys doing yeah. this. Like the guys you actually talk to are employees with managers who've got bosses who report <laughs> to the owner. It's, it's true. Like there's I mean, yeah. th these, these are industries like yeah. this is yeah. an industry. It's, you know? it's, it's large scale organized, organized yeah. scamming. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. OK, so uh, to bifurcate a bit away from uh, scamming uh, I, I'd like to I'd like to just talk if we could a little bit about what your life would be like on a desert island for a year let's say you go to individual desert islands all right you're you're not on the <laughs> same desert island I know um, you guys get along uh, famously but you're on separate desert islands and with you you get to take two musical artists catalogs 
um, all all the music that that musical artist has ever created. So it's not just one song or one record or anything like that. But you get to take two with you. And, and Dan, you're looking pretty confident. So I'm going to ask you first, because Chris still has that look of, well, I don't know if I want to answer yeah. this one. <laughs> what two artists would you take with you, Dan? Well, I, I want to pick somebody who has a huge catalog yeah. that I mostly like, right? So, <laughs> um, Good start, yep. Uh, Ani DeFranco oh, would be one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Uh, just, it's varied enough, and the albums are coherent. Um, the second one's hard. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I kind of listen to a wide range of sort of eclectic stuff, and none of the artists that I listen to have huge catalogs and it depends on what I was doing right if I had if I had all my computers with me and I could do anything other than listen to music but I could work on things yeah you know then I could bring some of the music I listen to in the background when I'm when I'm working on things and what would that I'd, be what would that be yeah I, you know I sometimes listen to um kind of odd electronica like yeah. wax, wax taylor sort of remixed stuff yeah. um Bjork in the background yeah. the non non-vocal stuff for the most part where I can't quite understand what the lyrics are, but it's just sort of a rhythm and background. EDM kind of um, a vibe. Yeah, yeah. but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to like listen to that if I weren't doing something. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that's the problem. It's like I have I have some music that works like in college, the music that I could write most efficiently to, uh, embarrassingly enough, was Super Tramp. I could <laughs> crank out <laughs> I could crank out like two thousand words an hour on Super Tramp. Breakfast in America uh, is a totally yeah, productive. Yeah, totally yeah, productive. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but you know, that doesn't work for me anymore. I'm not sure why. <laughs> So I, I would not want to take Super Tramp as my one. You, you're working, my one you're working yeah. music background. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you know, I'm not sure I have a clear second. All right. Fair Chris, enough. How about how about you? We've given you a little bit more time to think, but yeah. contrary to appearances, I actually have the answer for this question. <laughs> oh, um, snap! But first of all, uh, if you're if you're on the island and the volleyball is not talking back to you, it's not a scam. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Volleyballs don't talk. You know. So. Um, uh, so the first one is a pretty probably boring and pedestrian one, which would be you two. Um, however, for those who are not aware, there's actually some acute psychological insight in you two lyrics. For example, there's a line where uh, Bono sings, some people have way too much confidence, baby, um, which is certainly <laughs> something that I think, you know, I, I wow. agree with and is something to watch out for when being scammed. Um, and the other one is um, uh, Bob Mould. Yeah. Um, who uh, was the uh, main singer for Husker Du and then for Sugar and then had a solo career in between those yeah. and, and ever since and various other sort of random bands that he performs. I've seen him play live many yeah. times and, you know, at the whole island, you know, like the sound is much better. I won't lose my hearing or something like that from having that <laughs> yeah. loud, you know, uh, that loud stuff. So, Oh, man. Well, Minneapolis, Husker Du, you know, I got uh, Bob Mould and uh, exactly. they, they are you know, yep. um, my hometown here. So, uh, so yeah. and Chris, can you. OK, so, Dan, you can listen to music with less lyrics, it sounds like, while you're while you're mm -hmm. working. Yeah. To some degree. Chris, how about you? Can you actually listen to music while you're working? I'm sure I can, but for some reason, I, I never do it. I actually fairly rarely just listen to music. Um, the mo the time I usually do it is when driving. Okay. Uh, and I, honestly, like, I, I don't know why this is. I used to listen to more music. I used to go to more live shows, you know, back in grad school and postdoc and afterwards and so on. I think it's just sort of part of some kind of aging process. Like you sort of start to pay less attention to, you know, what's, what's coming out. So, um, but sometimes, especially when I'm, uh, 
driving at night, I think it's really good to uh, have some loud music playing to, yeah. you know, to help with the, uh, to help with the attention and, and so on, because listening to audiobooks is great, but they can put you to sleep sometimes, you know, and you don't want, <laughs> you don't want that while you're, while you're in the car. I've missed exits sometimes by listening to audiobooks because yes. I get <laughs> exactly. so into yes. it and it's like, I'm going, oh yeah. And then it's like, oh wait, I'm like miles past where I needed to turn <laughs> yes. off. It has, it has happened. Yeah. <laughs> so It's uh, less distracting somehow. Yes. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Dan and Chris, it is an absolute joy to have both of you on Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for being guests today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great chatting. Yeah, that was a fun conversation. Thanks. Welcome to The Grooving Session, where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Dan and Chris, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our tomfoolery brains. Ooh, I love that. Tomfoolery. We get fooled. We're fooled often. I'm fooled often. You know, do you have a do you have a great when you got story about when you got fooled? Uh, you want me to go on one and of, on and one, on one and of the on greater hours? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've gotten taken. Well, you tell the story of your painting, your your Bali painting. What was the oh. you know? So Katie and I are in Bali, and we asked the driver to take us to a fine art gallery and drops us at a place and all it has is art and we like a bunch of it some of it doesn't look so great but we find a little print that we think is really cool and uh the the owner of the place says it's 135 dollars, and we're told everything is negotiable in bali so we I offer something less and then he says, no, that's impossible. And then I offer something less and he says, no, that's impossible. And we go back and forth for about 45 minutes. It's quite long. And we end up at $35. And finally, Katie kind of says, can we just buy the damn thing? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yes. Okay. So we, we buy it and we go on and we do the rest of those things. So, that so 135 to start, you negotiate 45 minutes, get it down to 35. Pretty good deal. You are a negotiation like wizard. <laughs> Later that afternoon, we end up at the grocery store picking up a few supplies and there's a little art area and they have boxes of prints and oh my gosh, we stumble upon the very same print, not only the very same print, but in the very same frame for $8. (laughs) (laughs) The fine art and the fine art. It it was almost as though you were on a cruise ship, Tim, almost as though you're buying art on a cruise ship. (laughs) Just just like that. Okay. Uh, So enough for personal anecdotes. It does remind me though, that it's not just about the scammers. It let's, actually think about the victims here, about the people who get scammed. I think that so much gets sensationalized. Chris brought this up about how sort of the scammers get the Hollywood treatment. Yeah. You know, the dashing con artists, I think he said. I think that it's worth thinking about the people and their families in retail environments and consumer markets, especially. Like, let's let's think about them, uh, about the revenue that gets lost and the faith that we have that we lose in brands as well when this happens, um, I, I think this also happens in corporations. You know, I work at an organization that is extremely focused on making sure that there is no retribution for whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. That if you if you see someone doing something unethical, doing it wrong, not following procedures, that 
um, the teammates can can raise their hand and say, I don't think this looks right. Yeah. And there's there's no retribution. Yeah, I think that's cool. Going back to the Hollywood treatment, right? It is, um, you know, the the uh, DiCaprio, right? Wasn't he in Catch Me If You Can? Right. They're talking about the the con artist who, you know, did all these things and they idolized him, not the victims of all the cons, right? right? Exactly. And that I think is is important. And again, to your point, I think the the interesting piece of this is that you talk about like in corporations and the no retaliation, but if you don't do that, right, then you start to lose trust in the institution if there are people who are yes. um, scamming others or taking advantage of. Adam Grant talks about givers and takers, right? And this idea that if you have too many takers and not enough, you know, and those, and then they, they take advantage of the givers, you know, it, it leads to a bad culture overall and a variety yeah. of other factors in there. And then I, you go, the, the next iteration of this, I think, is the, in academia, right? In this idea yes. where we talk about, and this, we're going to groove on this on a whole separate issue, um, the idea of fraud in academia and even just in kind of pushing the limits on some of the stuff. But then, all right, so you're an author who did that, but the implications that has for your co-authors and other researchers and the institution. Yes. Yeah. As well All as that. just, you know, people like you and me who are out there going, I want to believe. And um, now I, I don't yeah. believe anymore. Well, and, and so we're practitioners. You are out there proclaiming the messages that you learned through published papers. Yeah. And what happens when that published paper is then removed? You have to go back in and re not just relook at what your story was, but represent, do you go back to all those clients and say, oh, what I told you was wrong? Oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't have moved that signature line to upfront because it doesn't really matter. And, yeah, you right. know, so you just spent, oh, and here, I'll just refund you all this, all this money because you spent it. And yeah, that doesn't yeah. really happen. So it's yeah. hard it, and it gets, you know, we, we tend to think about that from research, but you know, there's also just those overarching kind of concepts out there that, Hey, humans, you know, only use 10% of our brain, right? Well, that's, oh, oh, that's bullshit. And right. And, and, and this has been around for a long yeah, time. Takes seven years yeah. to digest chewing gum. No, no, it doesn't. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. Goldfish have three or five second attention spans. No, that hasn't been proven, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like one, one study, quote unquote, comes out and then you think, oh, well, that's s sensational. So it must be true. It's vivid. Mm -hmm. And then we believe that. Um, yeah. Yeah. How about, how about sugar makes kids hyper? Well, yeah, it does. Yeah. Guess what? There's, there is double blind research that proves that the, the sugar is no different than the placebo. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, I know, come hard. on. It is hard to disengage from things that we accept as as truths. And, and this is the knowingness. That's the other piece, I think, that Chris or Dan, I can't remember who brought it up, this idea of, all right, so you have that initial kind of splashy research that's out there. And then how much when it doesn't replicate, when it doesn't kind of hold true, 
how many pieces of information need to come out before that perception right. gets dislodged. Right. It, it, and again, I go back, you look at the, you know, the fraudulent studies on autism being caused by uh, vaccines. That was a fraudulent study to begin with. It was proven within like a year that that was a fraudulent study, that that was made up. And yet and that fostered this entire belief system that now has its own little world that circulates bad research, um, trying to yeah. be motivated reasoning to prove their point because they now believe that. And I think that is just really hard. Large scale ripple effects from uh, from bad information and uh, bad research, bad studies, bad scams. All these things have uh, long, long arms. I think that's I think that that's an important thing to to call mm -hmm. out here. How about how about you, Kurt? What's uh, what's on your mind for for grooving on? Well, you know, one of the pieces that I was really kind of fascinated in, or maybe it was what I was thinking about, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it 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 felt or it feels like fraud is growing, that there is more fraud, at least in the academic world that you and I kind of operate, we like to operate in. Yeah. But I'm wondering if, if it really is actually happening or if it's we're just paying more attention to it or it being uncovered more, you know, was there always this fraud and we just ignored it? But this idea that fraud across the board, not just in academia, but across the board is growing. And, you know, what did you find out? Because I know you looked up some of this stuff. Well, I did. And it is kind of interesting um, that in academia, we don't have a lot of record of fraud in the past. There just hasn't been that much. And so a little bit looks like a lot. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, some of the critics are, are saying, well, it's, it looks like a lot. Okay, so, so there's two sides of the coin. The, the, the one side is it looks like a lot, but really there are thousands of studies published every year. And we've found four this year that have been published over the last 10 years that are fraudulent. So let's not blow it out of proportion. The base rate is still that things are solid. The other side of the coin is we don't fully understand all of the fraudulent studies. This is this could be the tip of the iceberg, and there could be many, many more that have not been uncovered. So uh, I think the jury's kind of out on that. Mm -hmm. I guess that that's the short story. What about corporations? I, I, well, about half of all online bank accounts that are that are opened are fraudulent. Half. Yeah, yeah. So that feels like it makes the insider trading and insider information from 20 years ago seem kind of weak. When I feel like know? I'm going, my gosh, the, the research seems like it's a gold standard double, you know, up <laughs> right. there, right? I, I think yeah. that that's amazing when you think about the fraud and, I, and, and the other part. So, so there is this also piece that, hey, we have deep fakes. We have yeah. the ability today with technology to scam people a lot easier and with more uh, kind of, uh, hey, you hear this voice, it's the real voice of this person or see this video of this person or this picture of this person. And 
all of a sudden you're going, well, hey, if I can, I see it, I believe it, right? And or if I hear it, or if I, I hear it, it, I believe it. And I think the bigger piece of this, this is one of the pieces I, 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 and I can't remember where I heard this, so I apologize. But there was the component of saying, all right, so you go back to Trump uh, in the two, 2016 election, and he had the um, whole uh, video or the audio recording with a little bit of video from the inside you know, tonight or whatever that, that show was that he was talking Hollywood, Hollywood inside insider, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea that he was talking about, I can, you know, any woman I want and grabbing pussy and all that kind of fun stuff that he talked about fun being in yeah. air quotes there, folks. I'm not saying it was fun, but the, the bigger piece of that is, is all right. We never doubted that he said that, right? And he didn't even deny it necessarily when it came out. If that would come out today, the the first response from somebody who is said that would be, well, that's a deep fake. Yeah, I didn't that, say that. That is that was totally manufactured. manufactured. Right. And that would be a perfectly uh, valid kind of response for a lot of people because that is what's happening. So I, I'm less worried about like the deep fakes that are like, saying something and creating something that uh, is going to say, oh, this person did this bad thing, but it's almost as bad of saying, I'm a bad person. I did this and now I don't have any repercussions from it because I can always claim that it wasn't me. Yeah. There's no culpability Mm -mm. because the deep fakes are so good. You can just say, well, that, that wasn't me. That was AI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that really struck me about our conversation was when we were talking about who do we trust mm. i we trust you how. too i do even though at the beginning i said i didn't i do you're the guy i trust well that's your first mistake <laughs> <laughs> but i thought chris summed this up really really nicely when he was talking about maybe the the people that we trust the most are the ones who are authentic enough and open enough to admit their mistakes to admit that they've changed their mind um, which goes all the way back to Josh Turnbull. Yeah, you know, uh, many many episodes ago about uh, that that story that his his grandfather told about. You know, I start the conversation with one perspective, and then I get new information, and then I end the perspective the conversation with another perspective, and I, I can do that. I can change my mind. Changing my mind can be a good thing. It doesn't have to be. Uh, look down upon. Yeah, it's not a a flop and all these different pieces, right? If I get new information, I should build that information into my assessment. And if I don't, that's actually the bad part. And so to, to the point, what we talked about earlier, right? We get that first novel experiment. We get that first information about what's happening and we anchor in on that. And that is a big piece to really say, no, we need to just hold that with a little bit of um, flexibility to say, all right, I will change my mind. I will change my viewpoint if we, if there's contrary information and the people that do that are the people that we should trust. They're the ones who are out there experimenting looking and being uh, around this this component i think that's a really good 
piece as we think about that. So I just want to let you know I've changed my mind on a lot of things. And um, I held different <laughs> viewpoints today than I did yesterday. Just saying. I'm I'm struggling with a couple. Man, <laughs> I, so, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else, Kurt? What else? No. What about you? What's What's the What's your? Um, I you know there was one tip that Chris offered. I think it might just be worth noting that when it comes to how do we sort of manage the skepticism meter, he kind of pointed to this idea that wait to be skeptical on the big issues. Yeah. That that's not a bad way to go, right? Because. It could get fatiguing if you're skeptical of everything and everybody all the time. Yeah. So like I should be skeptical of the waiter when I ask, should I pick the fish versus the steak? <laughs> and I should be really skeptical when he says steak, because that's the $50 uh, entree and the fish is only 42 Right. And I'm going, oh, he just wants that extra $8. So I tip him more. Um. I don't think that that would be a big enough issue. But you can be skeptical of that, and there's there's good motivation behind that. So there's you know there's a good argument to be made that that could happen. I, but you know let's let's focus on the big issues. All right. Look at the sources. Look at where uh, where look at the motivations. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Understand. Really think about this from the big piece. And and you can be skeptical about the the waiter, but that's a lot of um, mental. Uh, power and and work that you're doing that probably could be better used in other places. So. Right. If you can afford to be in a restaurant where they're charging $42 for fish and $50 for steak, does it really freaking matter? <laughs> and, and and the difference in, in the, you know, the quality of your, your meal at that point. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, Tim, I, I know that for me, this was one of the, of at least 2023's coolest discussions that I've had. Now, you, you think? Bottle of bing, bottle of boom. Right. This was magic on a stick. Yeah. I mean, this great. was getting to talk to a couple of our heroes. I mean, seriously, it was the, you know, um, there are literature, literature uh, research, you know, we're fanboys and um, we got totally. to talk to them. And, and they were terrific guests. Yes. <laughs> right. I think most importantly, you know, I can imagine that lots of groovers will take away some really important points from our discussion. And for me, the big tech away is that should we regulate the level of skepticism depending on the size of the issue? Yes, we should. I think we should we should regulate. Don't use skepticism. Don't dole it out evenly. That's kind of my big thing. How about how about for you? You know, I think the piece for me is is as a couple pieces, but I think one is just Honest people are the ones like, who do we trust? We trust the people who aren't always sure, that yeah. are questioning, that are skeptical of their own belief systems sometimes. And those people who come across um, as always being right, never changing their mind, right? It's a maybe the honest people are the ones who admit that they were wrong. Yeah. So, Growers, we hope that this week, you can incorporate some of these tips into your decision-making and we hope that it will help you go out and find your groove or, or keep your groove. You know, there's lots of people who are already in their groove and they just might want to stay there too. Yeah. Yeah. But what about those who haven't found their groove yet? I mean, shouldn't we focus on them just a bit more? Should we think about getting people into I their groove? We should be 